Good morning. It, it, it's fun being here this morning. I, I was realizing this morning as I was getting ready that it's, it's been over a year since I've been here on a Sunday morning, and so it's kind of fun to be back here and, and to, to see everybody. And so I want to start just saying a, a special welcome to, to you from the university campus, and um, it, it's, it's been exciting uh, this past year seeing how God is, is continually at work at, at Hope Church. And um, you know, we, we, we constantly are talking about the fact that, that as, as a church, Hope Church, we, we exist to help people connect with God, and, and um, it's been fun to be a part of that at the university campus as, as we really um, seek to, to connect more and more people in the, in the city of Dubuque with Jesus, and we want to see more and more people come to know Jesus, and, and, uh, and so it's, it's, it's exciting. It's a, it's a passion of mine, and, I, and it's, it's fun to be here with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be going through uh, Exodus I, I, I love this story, and I'm excited to, to, to share with you some of the things that God's been teaching me. Um, so I want to encourage you to, to pull out your Bibles, open up to Exodus. Uh, I think on, on the screen I tried to put the page numbers for the chair Bibles so you can follow along. Uh, but as, as we get ready to, uh, to dive in, I just want to uh, just get started with some prayer. So would you, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we love you. We thank you for... Uh, this chance to, to come together to worship you, to, uh, to open up your word. God, I, I pray that, uh, that you would be in this place, that as we open up your word, that, that you would speak to our hearts. God, I pray that, that I would be forgettable, um, but your word uh, would speak to our hearts. We ask that you would be glorified in us today. In your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, the, just over the, these past couple months, we've been talking in my family a lot of just about uh, our ancestors. And uh, at Christmas, my, my brother-in-law is like all excited about learning about their whole family tree, and he's been researching it. And um, I think partly because they, like on my wife's side of the family, you go back, uh, they're related to like Hatfields, not McCoys, Hatfields. And so they've got, you know, there's lots of fun stories and uh, just kind of fun to, to learn uh, where we came from and, and a little bit of our history. And, um, and it's, it's, it is kind of crazy because I grew up in Washington State, uh, came here to go to college, and all my family's all over the West Coast. And, you know, consider myself a good West, you know, Northwest kid. I'm not, you know, I don't want to claim those Southwest. That's some issues there. Anyways, uh, but come to, to, to Dubuque. I'm going to school. And, and my sophomore year, end up learning from my mom, that my great-grandma, Grandma Bruner, was born and raised in Clinton. Um, so there, so much for me being a cool Northwest kid. My, my roots are right here in Iowa. And so, uh, but, but it's, it's, it's crazy to, to just, again, to, to learn who we are and where we come from. Um, and, and I think I, I want to, before we dive into the story, I just kind of want to uh, paint a quick context and a picture of where we find ourselves in Exodus. Um, because it's something that I think I always just kind of fly over. And, and I think for a, most of my life, I've kind of read the story of Moses w- with the wrong picture in my head. Because, see, for me, I, I read the story of Genesis. And, and like we were t- uh, Pastor Matt was talking about last week with Joseph, we read the story of Joseph, and, and you, you, we quickly go through uh, the, the start of the nation of Israel with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And then we get the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. And then we... You know, you, you get the whole people of Israel, you know, basically a large family, you know, 70-some people, moving and settle down in Egypt. 
you turn the page and we start talking about Moses. Um, and so I've always kind of had the, this picture that, that Joseph, Joseph uh, was to Moses kind of like great-grandma Bruner was to me. You know? you know, I guess so Moses looking at like great-uncle Joe or something, I don't know. Um, but, but the thing that, that I think I just kind of always fly over is the fact that between Joseph and Moses, we're talking about two to four hundred years. Um, so rather than it's me and great-grandma Bruner, it's me and like George Washington, Okay, it's a slightly different, different gap, right? Uh, and, and so you, you have the people of Israel in the story of Exodus aren't this family that's been traveling around together, um, trusting and following God. They're, they've been settled down, living with the Egyptians for a couple hundred years. They've heard the stories of, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Joseph, um, but if, if they were anything like me, they probably fell asleep in school and weren't too worried about George Washington and the cherry tree. You know, it's, it's an important story, and I'm, I you know, want to hear those, but, but at the same time, how's that affecting me today? Um, and so I want, to keep, I want us to kind of keep that picture in the back of our mind as we, as we kind of run through this story of Moses. Um, so we're going to jump right in and... Uh, Moses is, is one of those guys in the Bible that, that always kind of stands out. Right? I don't know if, if you're anything like me. Moses is like uh, on one of those top tiers of awesome Bible guys. Um, an amazing leader. And, and um, I don't know what you would call We'll call him his Bible stats, I guess. Um, but a, as far as a leader goes, I mean, it, it doesn't get much better than being the guy who, who delivers the people of Israel from Egypt. Not to mention all the, the stories that go along with it. We'll, we'll look at some of those. But the plagues and parting the Red Sea. And he's the guy who gets to meet with God on Mount Sinai. He's the one who gets to carry down the stone tablets. Gets to oversee the building of the tabernacle. He leads the, the people of Israel through the wilderness. He pleads with God. He sees God face to face. The Israelites can't even look at him because his face is glowing. He leads the people through conquering uh, enemies. Uh, he's a great leader. He dies, and he still gets mentioned throughout the Bible. He gets to meet with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Later on, lots of movies are made about him. Charlton Heston gets to play him in a movie. I mean, he's a great leader, right? Um, and, and so oftentimes, I, I, I read the story of Exodus, and it's, it's all about Moses and what an amazing leader he was. And, and yet, um, that, that's one of those times where, where we can quickly get off track. Um, because it's not about Moses. In fact, Moses didn't start out so well. Um, first couple chapters of Exodus, you, you see that it, he should have been killed as a baby. Then he gets rescued. He gets raised by Pharaoh in Pharaoh's household. So by the time he's an adult, uh, his own people, the Israelites, don't trust him. Um, as he goes out and he's trying to connect with him, he ends up getting in a fight, kills people. So then he's wanted for murder. And so as a great leader... He runs, and he goes off in the wilderness, finds a wife, becomes a shepherd, and is hanging out with sheep in the wilderness, um, just like all great leaders do, run from their problems, right? Um, and then while he's avoiding his problems and hanging out with sheep, he, he has his run-in with God, and God calls him to be a deliverer. And that's kind of where I want to pick up this story, and again, I, I, I've, I've 
I think I've come to, to appreciate the story of Moses even more because uh, I, I've started to, to see how uh, he, he's not some amazing leader, although he was, but he was a man uh, who followed God. And again, when, when God is, is the highlight of the story, then, then, then Moses is somebody we can learn from. So, and, and, and at the same time, you see Moses as, as just a normal guy. Um, and I, I love it. In, in, in Exodus 3, 3, um, this is, where, this is where, where, where God meets with Moses. And he does it in a, in a fun way. And so Moses is out hanging out with his sheep in the wilderness, and he, he sees a, a bush on fire that's, that's not burning up. And, and like any good man, he quotes, and this is an amazing leader, This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. And there's words of wisdom Right? He, he goes right, like I think like any guy, he goes running out, there's, there's a fire, and it doesn't seem, it's a bush, and it's not burning up, right? So he runs to go see what it is, and as he does, uh, God meets with him, tells him to remove his shoes, it's holy ground, and, and God calls him to be a leader, to be the deliverer for his people. And, and I think this is, where, this is where I place myself in these stories. And I've been doing it a lot in, in the past month as we've been reading through Genesis and Exodus. As we're doing this, eat this book, I, I, I keep finding myself reading these Bible stories and putting myself in the stories doing everything right. Right? Um, I put myself in Moses' shoes and, and say, you know, if, if I'm hanging out and I see a burning bush and I go up to check it out and God starts talking to me, not only that, but then he shows me some signs. I mean, Moses throws a stick on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And Moses, like a good man, jumps back, scared, right? But, and then God does some other miracles and, and proves himself to Moses and calls him. I put myself in that story and say, I'm, if I'm there, I'm going to be towing the line, saying, yes, sir, what do you need? And, and you know, God says, jump, how high? All those things, right? That's, that's what I, I read into it. And yet, the reality is, is that that's not what Moses did. Um, and if I'm really honest with myself, it's probably not what I would do. I want to I believe that about myself, but I've, I've proved myself over and over that, that I'm not that good. I can only imagine Moses' thoughts as, as God is calling him to go back to Egypt and lead the Israelites out. He, he's probably thinking to himself, they all hate me. The Israelites hate me. They, they think I'm, I've sold out to the Egyptians. They don't, they don't trust me. I'm a wanted man. If I walk into, you know, the moment I step foot in Egypt, I'm, I'm a goner. Um, probably thinking, hey, I, I don't know how much he liked the wilderness, but probably it was a very, you know, pleasant life, hanging out with sheep in the wilderness, not too much stress. Hey, God's calling him all, out of all that to go to Pharaoh, who is the ruler of, of the world power at the time, and telling him to let the Israelites go. I, he doesn't want to. And he comes up with a, a handful of excuses. But during that time, as he's talking with God at the burning bush, five different times Moses pleads with God to get out of it. He doesn't want to do it. He pleads with God. So much for this, this amazing leader, right? He's pleading with God to get out of it. So again, I, I, I am just brought back to this point that... that this story is not about Moses. Moses was just a picture. God's just using his story. Because, because Moses was an unwilling leader. 
But, but God used him to be a picture of somebody who's coming, who's going to willingly lead us out of our slavery to sin. And so we have to read through this story with God at the centerpiece. So then we move from, from God calling Moses to be a leader to, to the story of the Exodus. And this is the one that, that's, that's always in the movies. These, this is the, you know, the, the Hollywood part of the story, right? Um, and Moses and his brother Aaron go and they meet with Pharaoh. They, they give him the demands that, that, that God's calling the people of Israel out and Pharaoh should just let him go. And of course, Pharaoh makes it harder and then God uh, tells him that he uses the, the plagues. And so you have God turning the, the Nile River to blood and then you have a plague of frogs and then of gnats and a plague of flies and then kills off the livestock. Sends a horrible plague of boils on the people. And then sends hail, which wipes out all the crops. Then sends a plague of locusts, which finish off all the crops that somehow survive the hailstorm. And then he, he, he blocks out the sun. And then finally he, he takes the firstborn throughout the entire land. Now I want to spend some time talking about the plagues and talking about this part of the story. Because I think this is one of those parts in the Bible where we struggle a lot. Because we have those questions that pop up in our mind of, of how, how is this the loving God that we see in the Bible doing all this? Why did it, why did it take ten plagues? Why couldn't he just do one plague and, and be done with it? Why was God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Is he just a bully who wants to, to hurt people? It, 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 there's so many questions that pop up and um, why? I, I think the answer is that, that, that God is really doing three things with the, the plagues. He, he has three separate purposes. And I want to spend some time talking about those. And I think the first one is the one that, that I think I, is the, the easiest one to see. Um, and it's simply that God is showing his power to the world. Right? And, and, and I... I don't know about you, but, but I often like to, to make sure, you know, I want to I show up. I, I played rugby with uh, the city, and, and oftentimes, especially this time of year, we'd be in off-season trainings where we'd be practicing, and oftentimes during this time of the year, we get new guys show up to join the team. And they'd come to the first couple of practices, and normally during those first couple of practices, a new guy would, would really try to, to make a name for himself. And, and playing rugby during the off-season, and this time of year, we'd be inside in a gym on hard floors. We're not doing, you know, tackling all the crazy stuff with rugby. We're just passing the ball. We're doing practicing skills. And yet, during those practices, you'd have this new guy running around just like running into people, crashing people, trying to prove himself. And, and we would all kind of laugh. And, um, and, and I, would do, I would do that whenever I'm new. And so I want to make sure people recognize who I am. Um, well, well, I think God tops everybody when it comes to that. Um, he, he made a name for himself with the plagues. And, he, and we see it um, throughout the, the rest of Israel's history, as, we, as we'll continue reading in the next couple months um, through the Old Testament. We'll continue to see that, that um, God's fame, often with these other nations, goes back to their, they're like, this is the God of the, the, the Hebrews, of the Israelites, who led his people out of Egypt. And they heard about the plagues. They heard about the Red Sea. Um, this, is, this God is, is somebody to be reckoned with. 
And I think the world takes notice when you have a couple million slaves just walking out from underneath the reign of the, of the, the world power. Especially given the circumstances and the stories that go along with it. And so God's, God's making a name for himself and showing his power with the plagues. I think the second one is one that uh, I think we have a hard time with. And, and I think the second purpose of the plagues is that God's punishing sin in Egypt. And we have a hard time with it because a lot of us see Pharaoh as a normal guy. Right? He's, he's just trying to, to run a country. And I've got a couple million slaves who are getting a lot of work done for me, and they want to leave. I'd, I'd be a bad ruler if I just said, go, sure, go. We don't need you. We're, we'll be fine. We'll do the work. Right? It's not going to go over well. Um, and after maybe he made a couple of mistakes, but he, wanted to, he changed his mind, but God kept hardening his heart. Like, um, we have a hard time with that, right? And maybe it would be a little bit easier if we're talking about the Pharaoh a little bit earlier in the story who was killing babies, right? That one... Yeah, go ahead and do that to him. But this guy, he's, he's not that bad. And the problem is that, that, that we don't have a very good view of, of sin. Sin is a lot bigger deal than we want to make it out to be. We're just like Pharaoh. We're talking about a perfect, holy God. The Bible clearly lays out where we stand, Right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All of us stand before a holy God as sinners. We've robbed Him of His glory. We worship other things. We're sinners. I don't have to spend a lot of time on that one because I I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we we can connect with that part of the story. And then a couple chapters later in Romans 6.23, it clearly lays out that the wages of sin is death. And so as we struggle with this part of the story that that God is just punishing the Egyptians and punishing Pharaoh, and and those plagues are harsh, Um, the reality is what the Egyptians got on earth through the plagues is nothing compared to hell. And it's nothing compared to the punishment of hell. So if nothing else... Our response as we read this story shouldn't be poor Pharaoh, poor Egyptians, God's a bully, God's being mean to them. Our response to reading this story should be to look at the cross and say amazing grace. Because we are in the same boat as Pharaoh. We're in the same boat as those Egyptians. We are sinners standing before a holy God and we deserve God's wrath. I think the third goal of the plague, the third purpose of the plagues is, is the one I think that's the most exciting and the one that I, I don't think I've ever really caught before. And that's that, that, that through the plagues, God is claiming a people for himself. Remember back where we started, the, the Israelites in this story... Um, they've been living in and around the Egyptians within the culture for a couple hundred years. They had gone from being a, a family traveling together in a foreign land, trusting God for everything, following Him where He told them to go. And they go, and the 70, 
Some people move down, settle in Egypt, get land, get houses, settle comfortably, and for a couple hundred years just set, settle down roots. And by the time the story we're talking, that, that, that family of 70 has turned into a, a nation of a couple million people. Not only that, but they're, they're settled within the Egyptian culture, and the Egyptians, like everybody else at that time, um, had a habit of collecting gods. Because we follow gods because a god is powerful and he can do something for us. And so uh, the, all the nations during that time would have their gods. This is, you know, the, this is the god of the sun. We need the sun for warmth and for uh, growing our crops and all those things. We've got the god of the, the, the Nile, and we've got the god of the wind, and the god of this, and the god of that. And the Egyptians is kind of the, the, the reigning power, probably had conquered some other people, and, and um, rather than conquering somebody, wipe them out, they'd say, oh, you've got that, that seems like a pretty cool God, I can use a little bit more help in that area, so I would just kind of collect gods. So I've got, you know, the more the merrier, right? The more security I've got. So we can imagine that over the couple hundred years they've been living within this culture, the, the Israelites have, have picked up a few. A few other gods that they're trusting in, and uh, I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. and um, It's not that hard to believe because, again, as we will continue reading through Israel's history through the rest of the Old Testament, they did this time and time again. Even after they get into the promised land and God establishes them as a nation, they're constantly picking up idols or gods from other nations. So what does God do with the people that are crying out to him for help. As we see in Exodus, they're, 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 they're crying out for help and for freedom, and, and yet they're also trusting in everything else. So what does God do with a people like that? He systematically removes every other option that they have. That's where we pick up this text in Exodus 6, verse 6. God tells Moses, he says, Therefore say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you out into the land I swore to give to Abraham Isaac and Jacob, I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord. He's claiming them as his own. He wins them back. He proves that he is God and he demonstrates his power over everything else. Douglas Stewart says it this way, this is exactly what the only true God, Yahweh, does in the book of Exodus. He easily comprehensively, impressively, dramatically, publicly, decisively. He demonstrates his total control over all aspects of the physical world that were thought by the Egyptians to be the province of the gods of Egypt. He takes out every other option. The, the big idea that, that we need to get from this story is God is clearly saying there are no other gods. He wants all of us. Every part of you. And this, this, this truth is echoed throughout the Old Testament. Ah, 
We see it in the Ten Commandments. It starts right off the bat. The first commandment is that we are to put, have no other gods. He says it throughout the entire law. The whole point he's hammering home is that I am God. Jesus sums it all up. I, I, I like the way Jesus does it because you can, he takes the entire Old Testament and sums it up into to two verses, which is kind of nice. Um, but Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40, Jesus says this, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So that's it. The, the, the whole Old Testament is about that. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He is it. It's all about Him. As, we read, as we're reading through the Bible this year with this book, it, it's, he, He's hammering it home. This book is not about us at all. It's about Him. Starts off Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. And he finishes up in Revelation 22 saying, I am coming soon. This whole book is about him. And we have to remember back, remember what we just talked about with sin. There's only one God and everything rightly revolves around him. No exceptions. And again, I think this is one of those times where, just like I did when I was talking about Moses in the first place, I, I, I fall into that trap of, of reading myself into the story and doing everything right. right with, the, with the people of Israel, um, I, I want to, uh, to say, well, at least I'm not like those dumb Israelites. Right? Put me in that story. If I was sitting there in Egypt as a slave, and all of a sudden God comes through and with ten plagues just kind of completely decimates Egypt. And we get to go, and as we're leaving, people are just giving us stuff because they're happy we're leaving. And then we get down to the wilderness, and God's leading us every day with a huge pillar of clouds. And at night, it turns into a pillar of fire. And then he leads us through the Red Sea on dry land, which is kind of cool. Never had done that before. We get into the wilderness. He's constantly taking care of us. We're thirsty. He makes water pour out of a rock. We've got bitter water. He makes it sweet. Every day I wake up and there's frosted flakes on the ground. At night a pigeon flies into my frying pan, right? I'm going to do whatever God says. I'm going to toe the line, right? I, I, I think, quick side note, if you're one of those people who's constantly saying, God, if you just do this, if you make this happen, I'll follow you. God's probably saying, look, I've done it before and it doesn't work. We're just like the Israelites. We're just like them. Maybe we don't do the same thing. We, maybe we don't fall into the trap of worshiping the sun god or some golden image. But we still fall into the same trap of worshiping created things over the creator. We just probably pride ourselves on being a little bit more creative about it. Rather than worshiping a gold image, we've replaced it with something else. Maybe it's we just worship gold. Maybe we worship wealth. Our possessions. What are you worshiping? Again, maybe we're, we've got, become a little bit more creative. We're not bowing down and, and singing songs about it, but what are you, we worship it with our time and where we place our trust. Are you trusting in, in the things that you have, the wealth, the possessions that you have, the nice 
car or your new boat or your house or how much money you have in your retirement account. Maybe it's not money or wealth. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's the security that we can have. Maybe it's that people respect me or fear me. Maybe it's some status I have at work or in some team or some organization. Maybe it's the, the control I have over uh, other people. Maybe it's, it's I'm, trusted, I'm putting my trust in the government or in healthcare or uh, something that's going to take care of me. I don't have to fear because I've got security. Or maybe it's in people. Maybe, maybe we, we put our trust and we worship uh, the relationships that we have, our family. My family loves me. People like me. They think I'm funny or I'm cool or I'm amazing at this. They, I've got respect. And I've got security because I know that I'm always accepted. And I've got people who are going to take care of me or are going to look out for me. Or maybe you, you fall into the trap of, of, of just worshiping and trusting the fact that you can have fun. I think a lot of us fall in this trap of, of just losing ourselves in things. Um, I think later today there's going to be a lot of people worshiping. Um, my Seahawks didn't make it, so I'll be a little bit laid back this afternoon. But, but I think we all fall into that trap, right? Of, of we can worship just the, the fun that we can have in life, the pleasures of life. We can get caught up in that because we've got everything we need. The point is God is holy and he demands our worship. But we put our, and we put our trust in the things that we worship. So the question is, where are you putting your trust apart from God? What things are you looking to in order to fill your needs or your desires or your, your hopes, your dreams to calm your fears? Where's your trust? Because the reality is trust in anything outside of God is misplaced trust. Anything that we trust outside of God is sin. Where are you placing your trust? If we go back in, into the story, I, I want to spend a little bit of time just talking about the, the last plague and the Passover lamb and the, and the death of the firstborn because this is where the story gets crazy. That is, I mean, considering everything else is normal, this is, this is where things uh, get a little crazy. And I want to close with this thought because this holy God who we've sinned against, He wants to know us. This is, this is that amazing grace part. Here we have this stubborn, wayward, rebe rebellious people of Israel, or if we want to be honest, us. And this holy God wants to be in relationship with them. He wants to be in relationship with us. He wants them to be His people. So what does He do? He goes after them. He rescues them. He delivers them. He protects them. He makes them His own. And this last plague, the death of the firstborn, is, is the perfect picture of this. And God doesn't just go in and, and, and kill all the firstborn throughout the land. He, he, he makes a, a, an amazing picture. 
And later on, you'll read that he mandates that the Israelites celebrate this yearly to paint this picture. And we read it in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 6. The whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and to smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and every firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike down the land of Egypt. So before God goes through and and executes this plague, He gives them this command to to carry out. And what's amazing is that, again, as, as we understand God and try to get a glimpse of Him, He had this planned out from the beginning, from before time began. And those Israelites uh, that night uh, try, to, try to picture this as they're painting blood on the doors of their houses. I probably had no clue what they were doing. And as they stand back and just watch blood dripping down the front of their house, um, are just wondering about this promise. The one that we saw in verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over. That this promise that God is going to pass over them. But here we sit, and we can look back, and we see this clear picture of the cross. The blood of the Passover lamb was smeared on the door of those houses as a promise of what was to come. And that promise when God's own firstborn son hung on a cross as the perfect Passover lamb whose blood didn't just point forward to some promise but perfectly fulfilled that promise. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in verse uh, chapter 9, verse 12. It says, With His own blood, not the blood of goats, and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all time, and he secured our redemption forever. Where are you placing your trust? Are you placing your trust in people or things who are going to fail you? Or are you placing your trust in the holy God who has pursued you? That's the question that we have to wrestle with. Where is our trust? Where is our hope? Is it in ourselves? Is it in some other thing? Or is it in God alone? And and, and what we worship tells us everything about that. Where, Where we spend our time. Where is our trust? Where are we placing our trust? As we close today, I I hope that that question continues to echo through your mind this week. Where are you placing your trust? Because there is a God who has pursued you, who has claimed you as His own, and He wants to know you. His desire is to be in relationship with you. Let's pray. Father, we... ah,
We stand amazed at you, that you love us when we so clearly don't deserve it. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that, that he came in our place as the perfect Passover lamb. That his blood covered us and cleansed us and made us right with you. Jesus, help us to trust in you and you alone. Amen.